Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. I'm also on Instagram at I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon. Uh, the show is always free, but if you want to support us on there, you can. That's at Patreon.com/slash I Love That Movie. And uh, you know, if you sign up, you get a weekly bonus episode. It's just me musing about everything else I'm watching. People ask me about more current movies and shows that I don't get to cover on here. So that's all on the Patreon. We have a lot of great interviews on there too, where we talk about like, we've discussed WandaVision, The Mandalorian and several other shows. So yeah, we have fun on there. And I want to take a moment and thank my top patrons. They are Chris Balga, Jeff Whitman, Philip Barker, Michael Cross, and Josh Johnson. Thank you guys so much for keeping the lights on. Uh, and if you like what you hear today, please subscribe and rate the show. It does help new listeners find us. So I have a returning guest. I have Zaki Hassan from the Movie Film Podcast. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. Um, Thanks so much. Yes. I'm so excited. I feel like, honestly, Zaki, the first time I had you on, I was so nervous because <laughs> I'm such a fan of your podcast. So if you could oh, talk wow. a little you. bit about your show uh, for people that haven't heard you on here before. Uh, so I am uh, fortunate enough to co-host the Movie Film Podcast with my partner, Brian Hall. That's Movie Film, one word. And uh, we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary of doing that show. Oh, my uh, gosh. I, I don't know how many uh, total episodes that would be including uh, commentary <laughs> tracks and whatnot but got to be pushing up against uh, 400 once you factor in uh, all of those things and uh, I'm just honestly I started the show simply as a way to find a reason to talk to my buddy uh, because what I found is that uh, as I was getting busier as I was having children and whatnot it became harder to just fly down to LA and you know spend a weekend so I said hey you know if we start a show we have a, an, a, a, a semi-regular appointment to chat, and that's that's what it started as, and honestly, that's what it still is. I love it. I mean, I think that's why I like it so much, because you, too, you can really feel your friendship um, <laughs> through the podcast, and uh, it's just so entertaining to listen to. Love always hearing y'all's takes, and of course, all your reviews as well, so thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah, and so I always have the guests pick the movie. So people always say, can you pick this movie, that movie? You know what? You pick it. So, Zachy, what <laughs> movie did you pick to talk about today? Well, the last time I was on, I think we talked about The Godfather. Yes. And yes. and I thought, you know, just to kind of stay in that vein, uh, <laughs> I decided let's do Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Yes, 1945. So <laughs> taking it back. And, you know, it's right after spooky season. But, I mean, it's spooky season forever in my heart. So I don't mind you know, talking about another 
uh, horror, this time a comedy horror, which I think we've only covered like a couple on the show, but this is like the best one ever, right? So it's, <laughs> it's ask me, yeah. Cover. Yeah. Um, so before we dive in, if you have not seen this movie before, I definitely recommend that our listeners go watch the movie first <laughs> and then come back because <laughs> um, we will talk spoilers. Um, and I don't do like a before and after spoilers because it's just going to be, you know, the flow of the conversation. So I would I would pause here, watch it and come back. In the first of the Bud Abbott and Lou Costello horror vehicles for Universal Pictures, the comic duo star as railway baggage handlers in northern Florida. When a pair of crates belonging to a House of Horrors museum is mishandled by Wilbur, the museum's director, Mr. McDougall, demands that they deliver them personally so that they can be inspected for insurance purposes. But Lou's friend Chick has grave suspicions. That is the quick synopsis of the film, which isn't really that important, I don't think. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Anyway, um, but let's let's kind of talk about your history with Izeki. When did you first see this movie? So I saw this for the very first time when I was growing up. Um, I lived in Saudi Arabia when I was a kid, and uh, they showed it on TV there. And I was familiar with the Universal Monsters because um, there was a whole set of of books i think they were published by crestwood uh that that looked at famous movie monsters so you had you know an entire book about the wolfman and uh, frankenstein and you know king kong godzilla etc so i i had checked all of those books out so i knew them very well but i had the in terms of the very first uh time i saw the universal monsters on screen it was in this film wow okay so this was like your introduction to the whole I guess the first cinematic universe, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Um, I I don't think I've seen this movie before. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, this is my first time. So I was excited. Um, I'm glad that you picked it. And I don't know. I don't know why I haven't seen this before. I've seen some of the other like Universal Pictures, uh, you know, horror movies, but I haven't seen this particular film. So. Yeah. Wow. So that I, I don't have like out. a fun story. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. This time, this time. I love it when that happens, though. When someone picks a movie I haven't seen yet, it's almost always a movie that I've been wanting to see. And so, yeah, it, it just kind of goes along with that. But um, let's share. I'm going to share a couple quick facts and then we'll kind of dive more into the movie. So fact number one, uh, the animation sequences of Dracula as a bat and Dracula changing from a bat to Dracula were done by Universal International's animator Walter Lance, who worked on Woody Woodpecker. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh Let's see. Uh, so my other quick fact that I had was that according to the DVD's audio commentary by film historian Gregory W. Mank, this was the second cheapest film made by Universal International in 1948. And it became the studio's second highest grossing film of that year. And it spawned a whole uh, new mini franchise for them. Yeah. Yeah. I said 1945 earlier, so I meant 48, clearly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that's all I have for quick facts. Did you have any that you wanted to share? Well, I, I think one thing worth mentioning is that this is uh, the only the second time Bela Lugosi played Dracula. And yeah, it, it tells you something about how 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 much of an impact he made in the role with just one movie 
that we sort of we you know we just so completely uh, associate him with the with uh, that character and yet in all the other times that dracula appeared in uh the, these you know either in in uh, the sequel son of dracula or you know in all these monster jam movies it was never lugosi and the only, the one time he came back was in uh i was going to say parody that's not right but in a in a in a comedy romp mhm yeah i always get kind of bummed when i think about him and i think it's only because of that uh ed wood movie <laughs> that's right i mean and there is kind of like some sadness i mean when you read about like what was happening like during the time of filming of this and like this is his last time on screen as the character in addition to being the second time and all that but you just i don't know i almost feel closer to that actor than i would without that ed wood movie you know so yeah i always think about him and yeah that's true um, do you want to talk a little bit about the the cast? Well, I think what, what what's so great uh, about this film, it's what I appreciated as a kid, and I continue to appreciate, is that it it's meant to exist within the world of the Universal Monster. So they brought True. back all of those actors. You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. not it's not like oh, it's it's uh, you know. Uh, Schmankenstein's monster, you know, wing, 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 <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? And, and that's something that makes the movie work. It's that, that is uh, Lon Chaney as Talbot back again. There's Glenn right. Strange back as the monster there. Uh, there's Lugosi, of course, you know, and, and it adds this sense of Bud and Lou moving in and out of this movie. But it, you know, it's, it's funny cause, cause uh, Chaney, when he talked about this film, he said, Oh, I think that movie made the monsters into buffoons, you know? And, and I, I push back on that because I think what, what I love about this is that it's, it's another one of the monster mash movies, no different than house of Dracula or house of Frankenstein, but it happens to have Bud and Lou weaving in and out of it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think some of the movies afterwards that they did um, with monsters kind of lean more into the goofiness from what I read um but this particular one is more like a love letter uh yeah to those films so yeah i i completely agree yeah like this one and um abbott and costello meet the invisible man are both like like even abbott and costello meet the invisible man that is in essence just another invisible man sequel and it's it exists within the world of the earlier films you know um the Claude Rains character, uh, you know, um, Jack Griffin, like it, it's, it's part of those, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's why, uh, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and meet the invisible man. That's why they work. I think once they got to the mummy, as you said, like it, <laughs> it became more arch and it became uh, a parody. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. I, th- that's the trick, you know, like, like it, it, the, the modern comparison I make is like, is something like Shaun of the dead. Right. Mm-hmm. which is obviously far more grotesque, but you never, you, you laugh at, at, uh, uh, you know, Sean and, and Ed and everything, but you, 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 you never, uh, don't take the threat of the zombies seriously. Right. Yeah. I was reading an article that was saying that that's how you do a horror comedy is that, you know, you, you have the two comedians, but the other actors have to take their roles really seriously. So like, you know, all the other characters are playing it so straight um, and so dedicated. And that's kind of where some of the humor comes from. 
Otherwise, if everyone's being goofy, like you said, it kind of takes you out of it. That's right. Well, um, did you want to talk a little bit about some of your favorite scenes from the film? Oh, my gosh. Well, you, you know, I <laughs> <Every> think <film? laughs> so many. I mean, it it continues to crack me up. And I think I think what's what makes it extra funny is how not into it uh, Abbott and Costello were. Yeah, in the it, you mean behind the scenes, yeah. Yeah, like they they just they're like I don't know, this is a bad idea. We're not feeling it, you know, and and yet all these decades later, it cracks you up. You know, I watch it, I laugh. My kids watch it, they laugh. Um, I I think there, there's there's a couple of scenes that I always think of. I, the the one where, um, where where Lou is is um, he comes into Talbot's room after mm-hmm. Talbot has turned into the Wolfman. And so you've got the Wolfman sort of creeping around at the edges of the frame as Lou is just kind of <laughs> moving through and eating an apple or whatever, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, and again, it's what's so great is, is, you know, Lon Chaney uh, as Talbot and the Wolfman, he, by far, he's my favorite of the universal monsters. I have to agree. I saw that movie for the show and, oh, okay. And it was like the first time I'd ever really sat down and watched it. I don't I know. Like what was up with my parenting, right? Like I never saw these growing up. But anyway, <laughs> um, I watched it and I, I was really struck by how sincere yeah. and moving his performance is. I think drawing a lot from his own personal life, you know, and just you can just really feel that. And even in this movie, I read, you know, same thing. It's like you can tell he's going through a lot and it really adds to the character. I I think you could compare like his struggles with addiction kind of to, you know, turning into the Wolfman and stuff like that. It's just, I don't know. It just really, I I was in, I was really amazed by how much I liked that film. And I think it's probably my favorite. I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, so much of it is, is Lon Chaney, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just the pathos, right? Like, you know, if we're talking about the Wolfman, I mean, you know, the, the way that film ends where, you know, Sir John Talbot, ends up killing his own son he doesn't realize it. i mean it's 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 this uh, uh, uh gothic tragedy right mm-hmm. and and what i like is that for every every time cheney brought uh talbot back he kept that thread of pathos throughout up to yeah. and including Edmund costello like like mm-hmm. he's he's playing the same guy that's what that's what makes it so cool yeah yeah that that's true because i think sometimes over time with characters, they can evolve so much that they're nothing like what they used to be. And you're right. He stays so consistent like throughout. Yeah. And, and Chaney, you know, he's, he said uh, in, you know, when, when discussing the Wolfman, he said, that's my baby because no one else played him. <laughs> uh, yeah, but he played, that's true. He, he played every other character at some point. He played the monster. Right. He played Dracula. <laughs> you know, he went, he played the mummy. Um, and so I think definitely that through line really helps, but I also like, that uh, uh, Talbot is is the good guy, you know. He's he's the yes, one who's with Bud and Lou, you know. Like, um, the the way they set it up in the film, it totally works. Of course, mm-hmm. Dracula is the villain. Of course, the monster's caught in the middle. You know, it 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 works. Like I was saying earlier, you take Bud and Lou out, you've still got a great monster mash movie. That's true. I I completely agree, and I like the whole like, you know, it starts out with. Uh, well, I, I don't know. There's something really funny to me about the whole movie being in Florida. Like, I think at some point during the film, you kind of forget about that because there's like a castle and Dracula lives in Florida. Like, but anyway, like, I, I think it's funny that 
that you know chick and wilbur um are just baggage handlers and <laughs> and then they uh you know are transporting this uh these boxes to a wax museum like i mean how else do you get all these characters in one place the wax museum is like a perfect way to do that and also i think it's you know wax museums are like creepy and like i don't know i just kind of like yep. the way that they it's set perfect. that up for sure <laughs> yeah perfect like you said and, and the bit uh in in the beginning um where the the candlestick keeps moving on the casket i mean that that was <laughs> something that was from one of their previous films that called the hold that oh. ghost i think and you know that's what the Abbott and costello would always do they would kind of repurpose their their uh, stage bits or from other movies and and put them into new context and it just so happens that probably uh, of their movies uh, meet frankenstein is the one that's been most watched so uh, they've been immortalized those bits have been immortalized thanks to being in this movie for sure there were a lot of jokes that i've heard before that i didn't realize were from this film also um the, there's a joke about uh describing um one of the actors you know like using like an old cigarette ad uh the like tight fully packed easy on the draw you know i can't remember <laughs> what part of that what which part of the movie it's in but that part struck me because i was like i've heard that joke before but i didn't realize it was from this movie and i didn't know it was like based on like a cigarette ad so right. <laughs> pop culture reference of the time in 1948 <laughs> but um i really like that um and this, there were just a lot of moments like that where i was like oh i've heard that before and didn't realize it was from this film but you mentioned earlier that abbott and costello weren't you know really up for this they didn't really want to do it they had to be persuaded with a lot of money but also i think they were like about to break up too yeah, I mean, it, it, it's so interesting how they were they were very um, the, uh, what's the word? I mean, they they had a uh, a relationship that was very combative. Yeah, um, but I guess like on screen that that's kind of how the relationship is anyway. So it's kind of fine. Like even though they're at odds with each other in real life, if any of that came through, it comes through the comedy, which you know they have a combative I, back and forth. So it's but fine. I, but I, guess. I think, I think in real life, Bud was the more laid back one. Oh, really? And okay. Interesting. Lou, Lou was more dominant, which kind of mm. makes sense. Cause he would have been the more sort of uh, blustery. You know what I mean? Like, like the, yeah. the straight man uh, persona makes sense that it makes sense that Lou is like the funny one, right? Even though it's the pairing that makes it work. Right. Um, but uh, I mean, the fact that after Lou died, like Bud didn't really do much after, right? He did. Mm -hmm. He voiced himself on like the animated Abbott and Costello show or whatever. Um, but that was it, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, were there some other scenes that you wanted to kind of. Oh, well. Through? Well, the the when 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 Lou is is trapped in the dungeon, he's got the thing around his neck, and he's trying to he's trying to um, get get uh, uh, the monster's attention, mm -hmm. and he's just crying. Like, <laughs> I mean, it, it's you know, it, uh, Lou Costello had his his big baby persona. Yes. And, yeah. And he knew exactly what note to play to get the biggest laugh, you know, and there's, there's a shortly after he's freed where, uh, uh, and I don't remember the exact 
setup, but like he he's running in one direction and and Bud is like, no, not 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 the right, the other right. And he kind of looks at his hands and then he runs straight into a wall. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's it's just, uh, you know, the the he subjected himself to a lot of physical punishment because he went mm-hmm. for the laugh. It was always uh, he was always good for that. Yeah, um, I'm thinking about this while we're talking about it and I'm realizing that a lot of my exposure to Abbott and Costello is from like Looney Tunes and people doing impressions of them more than I've actually seen them. So like a lot of the jokes and bits that I recognize from this movie, I think I saw in cartoons. I don't think I saw from the original, which is kind of funny. See, I think my, my first exposure to Abbott and Costello was the, Abbott and Costello cartoon show that was by I believe it was oh, okay. so not too far off <laughs> yeah so I, I saw that and you know it, again it was uh, I was just like oh this is cartoon I didn't realize they were real guys right <laughs> you're like, oh my gosh it's 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 just like that thing that I saw you know yeah it's funny sometimes what what comes first like you said in a similar way like you saw this before you saw the other universal monster pictures so yeah kind of lends and, itself to that yeah and i think that's part of the reason why i i have such an affection for this movie that i that i bristle when uh people who who study those films or, or scholars of them say you know the abner costello meet frankenstein that one doesn't count and i'm like why on earth would it not count uh, you get yeah. you get lugosi you get cheney yeah, Glenn Strange. I mean, it's a continuation of those other films. It's if anything, it's this nice capstone or or epilogue to that era. For sure. And I think like, you know, for someone like me or or you at the time when you saw it, it, it can introduce you to that whole world, you know. Um, the further that we get away from this time period, it's kind of like I don't know, that just happens with actors and with um things that are really popular. The further you get away, like it's like sad, you know, in some ways yeah. people aren't as familiar with Bella Lugosi and Vincent Price and others. And so something like this can be a really easy endpoint, I think, for people That's to so dive true. back into it. Yeah. That's, a, you know, what you say is such a good point, right? Like growing up in the, in the eighties, I was a little kid, but if you showed me a picture of Lugosi, I'd be like, Oh, that's Dracula. Like before I even saw this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet to your point, like, I don't know that that is the case anymore. Right. Like me, my, my connection to Abbott and Costello is very thin. I mean, you know, like when I think about things around now, no one come for me if I say like something that's not from the exact right era, but you know, I'm thinking of like when I was younger, you know, I, I remember seeing, I don't know, like the little rascals and like, you know, certain comedic things from that era. Um, but, um, not so much Abbott and Costello. I saw a little bit of it, but it's like, I don't know. It's just kind of sad. It's like, depends on what you're exposed to. And I saw this uh, video a while back that said that, and I don't know if this is true, so no one come for me for this either, but it does seem like we're starting to lose some of our pop culture references just because when we were younger, um, there was more on TV. Like we were watching yeah. so much TV yeah. that was syndicated stuff from a long time ago. And so like I was watching like I Love Lucy and Dick Van Dyke and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And now that's kind of not happening. Now content is constantly being created at such a fast pace yeah. that I don't know that people get that exposure anymore. And it kind of 
it kind of bums me out. Like, I don't know what the solution is, but I, I appreciate stuff like this that was able to keep things in sort of like the pop culture consciousness for way after that era had ended. Like you said, I think it totally counts. I mean, it's it, what you say is so true. It's something, this is a conversation I have with Brian all the time on our show, because we talk about how, like, when we were growing up, uh, weekday afternoon syndication included, you know, Gilligan's Island and Brady Bunch and, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, Get Smart and things like that. Yeah, and like you said, I Love Lucy, you know, the, the, the 1960s Batman show. And, and so even as we were viewing it uh, 20, 30, uh, 40 years after it aired, it was still part of our language. Mm-hmm. So if you make a reference to the SS Minnow, you know, we got it. And yeah, to your point, like that's just not the case. I mean, I I think my kids, I keep them exposed to things from that vintage, but I I, I think I'm outside the norm, right? Like we, we're right now, my kids and I were going through Quantum Leap, the original Quantum Leap. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. <laughs> And, and love they love it. My 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 eight year old loves Quantum Leap. Wow, so and I mean like, that makes sense when I think about you know what my parents exposed me to. It it did inform what I liked a lot. So that's really great. But yeah, I don't think there's a lot of kids that are watching Quantum Leap. <laughs> that's yeah, that, exactly right. Like so so, how do these things stay alive? <laughs> you know, like uh, it, I mean that is sad. I mean I, I think it's sad. You know. A little bit like I don't want to be one of these people that you know like an old person that's like I don't like TikTok and you know like criticizing <laughs> what's popular but at the same time it is kind of a bummer I think TikTok's done a lot to revive older music they just sure. need to work on shows and, and movies next I guess but yeah I I, I think I, I'm glad that you push back on that idea of this not being a classic because I agree and I think like when I Google you know the movie at least it, I pull up a lot of stuff of, of people defending it I think because of what you said they probably connected a lot to it so that makes sense and I I, I think the fact that because I've watched this one with my kids you know and they they love it but you know I watch it as an adult and it still cracks me up right so I'm like this is this is that perfect type of movie that is able to work across generations. Um, and I think part of it too, you know, as I'm talking to you, you know, when you think about it, one of the critiques that I would assume was at the time is that, Oh, you know, it renders the monsters not scary. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think part of, you know, where you and I are coming from is like, I don't know that we've ever looked at the universal monsters as scary per se. Yeah, I they're, think they're good stories. Like, right, they're interesting, you know, but yeah. like I was never frightened of them, certainly, as, even as a kid. Mm-hmm. I think but, horror can be interpreted in so many different ways. Like, it is a genre, but it's, it's there's a lot of genres within that genre. And I agree. I don't know that the universal monsters are like, I mean, maybe when you're really little, you were afraid of them. But I don't think that they're meant to, like, terrify adults. I think you're meant to be empathetic and interested in the characters like when when you compare the the universal uh iterations of these characters versus say what hammer did with them in the uk Mm -hmm. uh, those films are still quite disturbing many of them um yeah that's true you know so so it does come down to approach and i think i think with that in mind uh, and I'm not I'm not even remotely an expert on the Hammer horror films. My friend Glenn Greenberg is is just, he he's a Dracula 
uh, aficionado, so he could oh, he nice. could talk you off about that. But, but um, in fact, I, I I did an episode of the Nostalgia Theater Show with him talking about Dracula. Uh, but he, you know, he he's able to to differentiate, and it's like you look at Christopher Lee's Dracula versus Bela Lugosi, and you say, well, Lugosi is iconic and interesting, but Christopher Lee is a scary one. Yeah, I feel like the Universal monsters. I would classify them as more like almost like theater you know like more dramatic and fun and big and entertaining uh but not necessarily like terrifying like i don't i guess you know like when you watch (laughs) something like vampire or like nosferatu like i think those movies are still genuinely creepy and unsettling but they're not they don't quite have the same like I mean, they're iconic, but they don't have like the same, like you're saying, the same presence as like Bela Lugosi has as Dracula. Like he's like a fun, you know, I'm going to dress up at Halloween like Dracula, Dracula. Yeah, but it's so interesting because because when you look at Dracula, the, the 1931 Dracula, um, and compare it with Nosferatu, you say, well, Nosferatu is clearly the better made film. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Or... Uh, um, Max Schreck as Count Orlock is clearly the more disturbing vampire, but yeah, I mean it's it's just something about about what Lugosi did. I mean, what Lugosi did in that film was so good that it made up for the fact that the movie is pretty dull. Yeah, it it's kind of like yeah, and it, it, it's I mean, even to this day, like let's say you watch something like What We Do in the Shadows, I feel like the gravitas and the entertainment factor that he brought to that character. I think almost every vampire iteration like pays an homage to that now. Yeah. It's, it's either uh, an homage or uh, a contrast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think he's probably the character I know the most about. <laughs> so that's why I'm sure. not talking as much about Frankenstein and uh, the Wolfman, although we talked about them too. I guess let's talk a little bit about Frankenstein then, because we haven't talked about him yet. Yeah, well, I mean, it, you know, uh, by this point, Glenn Strange, uh, this was his uh, third time playing the monster. Oh. And so we were very far removed from, from Karloff by this point. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think they wanted Karloff to come back for this one. He was like, I'm not. I'm not gonna he took the that role very seriously. Gotcha. So he 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 was gonna have nothing to do with with lampooning. I mean, he he stepped away after Son of Frankenstein because he was just like all the pathos that had been imbued him with, you know, in, in the original film and Bride of Frankenstein got drained away. And Son of Frankenstein is not a particularly good movie, but but it has Karloff. It's Karloff's last time playing the monster. Yeah. So that I would say- that's it's Go ahead. Sorry. Well, that's, I mean, that's its little check mark in history. It's just because of that. I would say even now, I feel like Hollywood has had a really hard time with the Frankenstein character yeah. in a way that they haven't had a hard time with characters like um, Dracula. You know, mm-hmm. like there's something about that story that I don't know why, but they just have a hard time retelling it. You know, I I think it's because. And I do, I do chalk this up to to just the the iconography of of the the Boris Karloff slash Jack Pierce depiction of the creature, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
I think every just like we we're talking about with Lugosi, everything since is either an homage or a contrast. And yeah, uh, you know, I like like I think I think that the you know Kenneth Branagh's uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, like I don't think it works. Not because it's not true to the book, but because that's not the version of Frankenstein people want. Yeah, I guess you're right. You know, I've, I've thought about it a lot, just about the fact that the original story is like the original sci-fi and like mm -hmm. it is such an interesting and dark and just such a good story, but they have such a hard time retelling it. I guess you're right. I guess the way that the character looks is so cemented in our minds that when we veer away from like what the original movie we saw was, it's just too hard to recapture. Um I don't know. It's like, can't they just make a, a retelling where they do go full, you know, uh, for, I guess, for lack of a better word, camp and like do it again. I don't know, but I really like it, you know, and I really want to like it, but yeah, yeah. whenever they try to redo it, I'm just kind of like, I don't know. We want I mean, I, I, I think um, the character in the book is very verbose and he's, <laughs> you know, he has these long monologues where he's very existential. I mean, he's, he's kind of, he's like the silver surfer almost, you know, the way he's talking and the mm -hmm. angst of his existence and whatever. And yet I think the vast majority of people, if they have a concept of the Frankenstein monster at all, it's the, ah, you know, like, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, and, and most people Me haven't too. seen the film at this point. We can assume that most people have seen neither Frankenstein nor Bride of Frankenstein. And yet, I mean, yeah. I've seen him, but I think of like, you know, I think of uh, Mel Brooks, Frankenstein. Yeah, Frankenstein. sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so they, you know, they, they tried to revive the Universal Monster. Well, they've tried a few times, but Universal tried to do with Van Helsing. Uh, right. Where they, they did their version of Frankenstein, where he kind of vaguely resembles the, the Karloff version, but he's very, you know, he's got the stentorian voice and, and I mean, audiences rejected that movie. Yeah, yeah. It it just feels like, for whatever reason, it belongs in that time and looking that specific way in a way that like some of the other characters don't. But I mean, honestly, to be fair, I think even the Wolfman has some of that going on too. Like, I think they've tried a couple times to tell like a newer version of the Wolfman, and it's like, mm, I don't know, <laughs> I'm not feeling it the way I was the first one, and. I, I don't know. I just think that's kind of interesting that that's the case. So that's why it's a, revival. I, well, just to pick up on what you're saying about the Wolfman, right? Like, like the the Joe Johnston directed remake from I think it was 2010. I just revisited that recently, you know, and oh, nice. <laughs> it, it's it's interesting because I'm I'm not down on it, but I'm just like it's it's got all these really interesting pieces, but they don't quite line up. Hmm. Um, cause I think Del Benicio del Toro, who's playing Talbot, I mean, you talk about like, just in terms of his appearance, he resembles Lon Chaney Jr. Agreed. Yeah. He's good. Right? So you're like, and apparently he was like a huge fan of the Wolfman. So on, on the one hand, you're like, God, this is perfect. Right. And, and I think the, the makeup, the, the, the Rick Baker makeup to make him look like the Wolfman, it, it evokes the, the Chaney version. Hmm. Um, but yet the movie just doesn't come together. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So you couldn't remake this movie, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, probably at all. <laughs> I don't think you couldn't really you need cast to... it in modern day. 
Uh, unless you get, uh, you know, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and you just do do something with them. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> it is interesting you said earlier, too, like that the comedy still fits. I know that that's always, I mean, that's something we hear at, all the time, right? That like, well, they could never make this movie today or this wouldn't be funny today. And my answer mm-hmm. is usually that comedy evolves. It, it just does. Like yeah. what's funny today isn't funny tomorrow. It, it, it keeps changing and, and that's okay. Like that's not a bad thing. It's just what happens. But you can tell when somebody was like truly at their peak and when it was really good when something like this does age pretty well, right? Like it's still funny yeah. to us today. I think it helps that Abbott and Costello's approach uh, to comedy was rooted in absurdism mm-hmm. that sits to one side of whatever the contemporary conversation is. Oh, um, gotcha. That makes sense. You know, it's just it's it's nonsense and nonsense is always funny i wonder if that comes from or go ahead sorry no no, good (laughs) i i I was just thinking maybe that comes from so like the way that they got together before you know radio and film was they were in a burlesque acts right like Mm -hmm. they were yeah like in between sort of commenting on what was actually happening so they weren't like the main event they were like commenting on it Uh so it's kind of like in this movie that's what they're doing they're like in the movie and they're the main characters even but really they're just commenting on everything else that's happening that's right (laughs) (laughs) i mean you know one of one of abner costello's most beloved routines is who's on first yeah yeah that's what i automatically think of for sure that's a if if people know them at all it's because of that and when you think about it the entire conceit of who's on first is ridiculous because you're asking the audience to buy that a team would have these people with these kinds of names, right? I mean, it's preposterous Mm -hmm. because those are, nobody has those names, but at no point are you thinking that while you're watching them perform the routine Mm -hmm. because it's, yeah, I mean, right. It's, it's just the, you know, and it, and, and the nonsense of it is the point. Right. Uh, it, you yeah. know, uh, um, back in the day, Jerry Seinfeld uh, hosted a special on NBC. This is when Seinfeld was on, where where he was, uh, you know, talking about his love for Abbott and Costello. And that might seem like a strange thread to draw, but I think that's that's the appeal of it, it, it's it's absolutely apolitical. Um, it's rooted in things that are just about making you laugh. Yeah. That's that's such an interesting connection. I, I was going to say, too, that I think the humor resonates with me because that's my kind of humor where it's I mean, it, you know, there's they do a lot of big things. Some of it's kind of slapsticky. I mean, it's older comedy, but at the mm-hmm. same time, it's like really dry. Like a lot of it is just like they're arguing back and forth. And I like that kind of humor anyway. So I think it right. translates well to today, because even though they do use a lot of like pop culture references, the core of what's funny isn't that it's like just them commenting on the situation that they're in. Like you said, you don't, you don't get lost in like the details. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, was, are there any other actors or parts about this film that we haven't kind of touched on yet? It's only like 82 minutes. So I I didn't realize it was that short (laughs) until I watched it, (laughs) but it's a comedy. It's kind of nice, right? I, I didn't give you too much homework. <laughs> you didn't. It wasn't like a three-hour movie or anything, which no shade to anyone that's picked a three-hour movie. We've talked about those two, so no shade. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's good to, to balance it out, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But what were you going to say? Um, what 
Well, I, I was going to mention Vincent Price making a voice cameo at the very oh, end. Vincent Price. I love him so much. Now, now, what's interesting to me about my memory of watching this movie for the first time uh, was I, I had no, I had never seen Vincent Price in anything. Oh, really? But when I, at at that point, yeah. when, when I, you know, I knew who he was, you know, because he he was in the eighties. He was kind of like a pop culture presence, right? So For sure. he had been in, you know, an animated version was in, you know, Scooby Doo or whatever. But the movie ends, or it's coming to the end. We hear Vincent Price, Price's voice, and I tell my brother, "I'm like, that's Vincent Price." I have no explanation for that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea why I would have known that, but that's a definitely a thing that happened. Oh, so you knew it the first time you heard him? You're saying, but I I had no reason to be able to know that because I had <laughs> sure never been exposed like... to it. The Michael Jackson video thriller, or <laughs> nope, hadn't. I saw that later. Interesting. Wow, <laughs> isn't that weird? <laughs> well, he's got a very distinctive voice. Yeah, you know, and like a distinctive presence, like in everything that he's in. Like, I, I think that's why I like him so much as an actor. Like, I, I feel like his, like, I don't know. I don't want to call it like overacting, but his, his style is so interesting and so fun and so big that. It's just, it's just cool. But like, I always think I of love, him, or go ahead, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say, I love, uh, to your point, I love Bill Hader's impression of him on SNL. Oh my God. So <laughs> Every Halloween when he used to yep. do that. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the first time I saw Vincent Price. Um, I mean, probably for me, the first thing that I learned who he was, was because on Sesame Street, there was a character named Vincent Twice. Um, okay. <laughs> he would say his name. He'd be like, "I'm Vincent twice, Vincent twice," and like that. That was my first uh, thing. And then, of course, he was in uh, Edward Scissorhands. I think that right. was like his last performance. And, that was his last thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then again, like the voice in the Thriller music video, and probably mm-hmm. like House on Haunted Hill and stuff like that. But I remember like the first time I saw the movie, um, The Last Man on Earth. Um, right. I, I just really loved his performance, but like I was describing the movie to someone that hadn't seen it. And I'm like, it's kind of funny to me a little bit too. Like I really respect him, but it's also kind of funny because in that movie, I feel like he's just like running around yelling, like I'm the last man on earth. And he's like really <laughs> over the top delivery. And it's just like, that's how I think of him. And I don't know, it's just fun. But yeah, I think that's why you somehow knew. I think his presence just like, I don't know, broadcasted itself yeah. to you and you just like it's, you it's, see it. It's so yeah. weird how that but I, I have such a distinctive memory of saying that to my brother, like, oh, that's a Vincent Price's voice. Like, <laughs> why would I know that? Yeah. Yeah, I really like him also because um it was probably like ten years ago, my husband and I bought from like Walmart. It was like I don't know, like twenty horror films in like one little set and it was really cheap. Mm-hmm. It was like in a bargain bin, but it was like a ton of films from like the forties and fifties and we watched like a bunch of them. Um, and he was obviously in a ton of them. So it was really fun. That was, I, I feel like he kind of fell into that, that Lugosi yeah. space where just, it, he kind of had to crank out a bunch of, you know, low budget stuff because he was so typecast into that genre. Yeah. I don't, I'm not say I say, I don't say this as an insult, but it's almost like, 
what happened to Nick Cage a little bit. Like he's, sure. yeah. you know, yeah. and it's like, but, but in some ways that makes him even more endearing to me. So I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, I mean, this is something that, that so many of these horror actors went through, right? I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, Christopher Lee spent basically the eighties and nineties not doing anything. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, and then uh, Lord of the Rings sort of put him back in front of the public eye and, you know, he was in star Wars, et cetera. And, you know, by the time he died, I think he realized how loved he was. Yeah. It's kind of like and, what you know, Star Trek actors go through, honestly, or star yeah, Wars. Totally. Um, I was totally. at it. Like, yeah, go ahead. I was, no, it's like, there's this, there's, there's this dip where they can't find work. And then all the people who grew up with their work, give them a ch- you know, they, they have a chance to, to um, work with them, you know? Right. That makes a lot of sense. Like uh, I, I was at a, a con uh, like a month ago <laughs> and John Delancey was there in Gates McFadden and uh, somebody came up and said, asked John Delancey, they're like, hey, so, you know, I noticed that in your career, like, do you feel like Star Trek uh, ruined it? Because you did a lot of like smaller you know, less important roles after that or something like that blunt. It was like pretty brutal. Uh-huh. <laughs> and John yeah. Delancey was quiet for a minute and he just said, you know, I got a lot of work because of Star Trek and I lost a lot of work. I mean, that's just kind of wow. the nature of it. And I feel like that's changed a little bit these days. Like I, I don't think actors get quite as typecast as they used to. Like for some reason, we just accept them in more roles than we used to, but you know, that was definitely a thing. And, and you can see how like the horror genre was definitely that for a long time. What later I think yeah. into the sci-fi genre. I mean, I, I think that, um, I, I think honestly what, what helps is having, uh, this, the convention circuit also, mm-hmm. yeah, um, true. because, because it keeps them out there. Um, you know, I, and, and I, I've seen interviews with like, uh, with Dominic Keating from Star Trek Enterprise where he's like, you know, pe- people come and they bring their kids and I'm like, Hey, keep them coming. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, like it's, if nothing it's else, he'll always have that convention. <laughs> That's true. I know. And I have so many fond memories of that, you know, of just going to conventions and meeting some of these people. So, um, I love my tangents, but I just had to mention that too. <laughs> no, it's a, well, it's a good tangent. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> kind of connected. <laughs> um, I, yeah, speaking of conventions, uh, you know, uh, the last time I went to a convention was like fall of 09, or excuse me, fall of 19, sorry. Oh, I was like, oh my, that's like a Not long 09, time ago. 19. I, you know, the nice thing is I'm able to go as press, so I'm able to dodge a lot of the lines and stuff, which is, um, I'm hopelessly spoiled now. Because yeah, of that. that is really nice because uh, there's some lines, it, let me tell you. It's brutal. Um, but I met uh, Anson Mount who oh, awesome um, oh yeah had, i saw your post you saw yeah he he had played captain pike by then but the 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 new series had not started um so there was no line at all really i mean he was just chilling you know um which made it a great opportunity to just chat with him but more importantly he was so nice to my kids and, Aww, that's and they'll awesome. always remember that they'll always remember like captain pike was just like chilling with us you know yeah, I'm always like defending that because I remember I had a friend one time that watched the documentary with uh, with Conan O'Brien uh, when he was kind of it was like right after he had lost the show and uh-huh. um, and he was doing kind of like 
a, a tour and meeting a ton of fans. And my friend was like, oh, that's so horrible. Like he has to like spend all those time with those fans and they exhaust him. And they, there's these long lines and they treat him like a product. And I was kind of like, oh my God, like that was horrifying to me because I love going to conventions and stuff. And I told her, I was like, I don't know. There's like another side I think that you just haven't seen where I think that, I mean, it is part of the job for some of them, like that, that's part of what they do. But also I've, I've got so many great memories um, where I feel like the actors really enjoyed the interactions and it wasn't like that. I mean, I guess I've had a couple bad ones, but honestly, they've been way more good than bad. And yeah, I don't know. I, I reject that. I think that it's, it's been a really good thing. And then like yeah, you said, it I, helps I keep them in the, in the pop culture consciousness so that they get more work too. So. I think so. You know, I mean, I, I think that if you're an actor and, you know, you have an opportunity and, you know, you hope that you're working and you have other opportunities, but the idea of like, you go to this thing for a weekend, you get to hang out with your own friends because your colleagues are there too. Oh yeah. And you get, right. And you get to have people come up and chat with you about how much they like your work. I mean, that's gotta be kind of a nice. <laughs> yeah. Why can't they have that for me? No, but yeah, it's that, that's <laughs> something that everybody gets. Like you said, usually you don't get a bunch of people lining up to thank you. So, and then you get paid for it. So it's not, it's not all bad. Um, no, but yeah. Yeah. Um, well, was there anything else with the film that we haven't touched on yet? I, I, I want to make I, sure. We I think we the covered uh, all the bases and then some. Yeah, I think so. We, we we ventured off into fan territory in a positive way, which is hard to do these days. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, Zachy, thank you so much uh, for coming back and picking this film. Um, like I said, I you know really appreciate your show and wanted to wanted to give you an opportunity to share. Like, where where can people find it? Um, well, you you can look for the movie film podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, the Nostalgia Theater show is a spinoff show of that, which uh, has been on hiatus for a little bit, but I'm hoping to bring that back uh, in the new year. However, there is a big archive of interviews I've done for that show that is out there. And that the, that's each episode I talk to an actor or writer or director or producer about some pop culture artifact that they were involved in. And uh, we go in depth. So I've talked with... Um, uh, Patrick Duffy about Dallas and Mike Farrell about MASH. I talked to James Mangold about Ford versus Ferrari and uh, uh, Fief Sutton who produced Cheers and Stephen Weber about Wings, etc. And I uh, truly, uh, I, I love the many different conversations I've been able, able to have on that show. So I hope people check that out. And uh, you can also find my, my reviews and other commentary pieces at the San Francisco Chronicle. And that's sfchronicle.com. Actually, as we're recording this, I just received confirmation that I'm going to be chatting with uh, Warwick Davis about oh, uh, the nice. revival of Willow. So that's awesome. that's, uh, <laughs> that's coming uh, very soon. So, Man, my husband will love that. Well, thank you again so much for coming on and, and hope to have you back soon. Thanks so much, Lisa. I appreciate it. 